unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Welcome all to the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode nine. I'm David Grubbs, and this week I'm going to be the moderator. With me, as always, is Michael Farmer. How are you, Michael? I'm pretty good. How about you? Not flooded out today? Um, no, the, the waters have receded. Uh, we're, we apologize to our listeners. Uh, we, we couldn't record yesterday as planned because there was a, a giant thunderstorm moving in uh, over my house, and I didn't want to be sitting here with, uh, with headphones attached to the wall. <laughs> Yeah, well, it it reminded me yesterday of of what I would always hear amongst my family when we were planning something, and and all uh, all activities were contingent on the Lord willing and the creek don't rise. The the so. creek done rose yesterday. <laughs> and also Nathan Gilmore, how are you, Nathan? I'm doing great. My office is entirely dry, as far as I know. <laughs> Mine too. Um, this week, uh, I know that at, at the end of our last episode, uh, we'd said that we were going to be moving on to the topic of uh, from apologetics to to polemics, from kind of the the argument about the faith um, on the on the outside to argument about the faith on the inside of the Christian community. Um, however, some uh, events have intervened in the meantime, which I thought it would be. Uh, useful to discuss um, because that topic uh, has uh, some resonances in the uh, in the history of Christian uh, in the history of Christian thinking in the history of just human thought uh, both philosophy and art and so it makes a good topic for uh, our conversation I'm referring to uh, well Pat Robertson's comments about uh the haitian earthquake um michael i think you had that uh, queued up to play i do so we'll uh, play that and then we'll talk about it all right let's do that you know christy something happened a long time ago in haiti mm-hmm. and uh, people might not want to talk about it they were under the heel of the french uh you know napoleon the third and whatever and they got together and swore a pact to the devil. They said, we will serve you if you'll get us free from the French. Mm. It's a true story. And so the devil said, okay, it's a deal. And uh, they kicked the French out. You know, the Haitians revolted and got themselves free. But ever since, they have been cursed by, by one thing after the other, desperately poor. That island of Hispanola is one island. Mm-hmm. It's cut down the middle. On the one side is Haiti. On the other side is the Dominican Republic. Yeah. Dominican Republic is, is prosperous, mm-hmm. healthy, full of resorts, etc. Mm-hmm. 
Haiti is in desperate poverty. Same island. Sure. Uh, they need to have, and we need to pray for them, a great turning to God. Yeah. And out of this tragedy, I'm optimistic something good may come. But right now, we're helping the suffering people, mm -hmm. and the suffering is unimaginable. Absolutely, Pat. So when Robertson uh, said this, there was immediately a reaction. Uh, I believe there was a reaction on the show in which he said it, but also a after that, after it was uh, it went public, there was a storm of denunciation, including from Haitian diplomats and other figures, both secular and Christian. Um, what was your your reaction, guys? Uh, honestly, my first thought when I heard about this, and I didn't actually see the show, I, I read about it. I think in somebody's. Facebook update, but my first thought was as long as that man is alive, mediocre seminary students are going to have things to write about on their blogs. Now, I realize that is a mean-spirited reaction, but that was my first emotional reaction. Well, yeah, I just he, I just slapped my forehead and wondered why he keeps talking about this. He is excellent blog fodder, but yeah, I, well, I didn't slap my forehead. I wanted to slap him. Um, yeah, you were irate. You were much angrier than most people I know. I was, um, I was more amused. Yeah, that kind of thing really, really, really ticks me off. But I, I hope as this conversation goes on, I'll get a chance to sort of explain why it ticks me off. Well, I mean, that's, that's one of the many things I like about you, David, is that whereas the world has ground me down to the point where I, I don't even get amused anymore, I just kind of raise an eyebrow and then go on with my day. I mean, you still engage with these things and care about them, and I think that the world needs more David Grubbs and... You know, I think there's an, enough guys like me. We're a dime a dozen. <laughs> How much do I cost, Nathan? <laughs> okay, so those are kind of our our, our gut reactions. Um, it also led me to think, though, and uh, my thoughts led me into some not entirely comfortable arenas. Comfortable for me. Um, but I wanted to today in this conversation, look at three different topics that he's, that Pat Robertson seems to be raising. Um, first, just the veracity of his claim. Okay, did the Haitians have a pact with the devil? Um, but second, the assumptions that he seems to be making about the causes of suffering in the world and the purposes for that suffering. Uh, he seems to be assuming that that there are some pretty clear things that we can uh, that we can see in this situation that those assumptions are not necessarily shared by um, other people in our culture or even other people in the faith and I think that's where a lot of the reaction has come from uh, but third even the fact that Robertson is saying this also makes an assumption uh, about what the appropriate response is to tragedies like this when we uh, when we see them. Um, so I, I guess to, to start off with, my first one of my first reactions when I heard this is he is just making stuff up. Um, <laughs> did, 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 uh, what did you did you guys think the same thing? I'd never specifically heard that the the Haitians had made a pact with the devil, but. Um... I knew they they were uh, you know voodoo is very big on in in Haiti and I I figured that's what he was referring to. 
yeah, I right. figured it was some kind of voodoo reference as well, but I didn't really think much about it until we started prep for the show. Well, I, I just assumed that he'd taken uh, Live and Let Die as kind of a, 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 a serious sociological work. Once I got over that initial reaction of thinking that Pat Robertson was just, you know, riffing off of James Bond movies, uh, I decided to look it up and found out that there actually was something behind his statement, which wasn't exactly what he said, but close enough to where you could see what he was responding to. And that is a a historical event, which my my Haitian Creole is not going to be terribly awesome, but I believe it's pronounced Wakaiman, which, uh, Nathan, you said that you'd read something about this. Did you? you Yeah, like I said, you know, when we were when we were prepping for the show, I I did a little bit of reading around. And I mean, mainly in, you know, just some very basic Galileo searches, some Google searches, things like that. Uh, But apparently this event reputedly took place and david correct me if i've got the years wrong in 1791 mm-hmm. uh just before the revolt of uh i don't know that toussaint l'ouverture uh and according to this event there was a mass voodoo ceremony in which uh this mass of haitians uh started chanting an oath to the loa the you know presumably papa legba and other voodoo entities uh, that they would drive the French off the island and they would, they would kill all the white people. Uh, now, I mean, all of that as background, you know, that's the event that Robertson seems to be alluding to. What's interesting is the first written account of this, as far as I can tell, doesn't appear until 1823 in a Frenchman's account of the event. But what's even more interesting is that many, many years later, the Haitians themselves latch onto this as a sort of national mythology. Uh, so what you've got is, you know, a an event that probably has some historical reference, picked up on by Europeans who probably have a little bit of paranoia about the Haitians and their strange heathen practices. By the way, my tongue is in my cheek when I say that, listeners. Uh, <laughs> and then later on is picked up by the Haitians themselves, you know, and they say, all right, you know, this is going to be one of those stories that really defines us as a people. So it's one of those wonderfully complex, multi-layered events. Um, you know, I, I think that Robertson, you know, flattens all of that out horribly, as, as Robertson tends to do with most of reality. Uh, but, you know, it is one of those things to where, you know, the Robertson reaction, wrongheaded as it is, we shouldn't meet it with an equally flattening response that says there is nothing to it. You know, Mm. my my opinion is, you know, and this is as a person who's interested in history, a person who's interested in culture, we should look at it as the multi-layered complex thing that it is. uh, And really, I guess, take that seriously as we think about, you know, what the national identity of Haiti is. Um, Michael, I mean, you know, do you have anything to chime in on that? I, I do want to do want to note that voodoo is huge on that island. That like eighty percent of Haitians are Catholics, and the other twenty percent are Protestants. But uh, voodoo is just completely infused with um, with both of those both of those uh, religions. And uh, I I don't know what you guys think about voodoo. I don't know what I think about voodoo. But um, they're, most they're, of my exposure has been through Scooby Doo cartoons and, and the Princess <laughs> and the Frog. Uh, so, so I'm not I'm I'm not sure if if either one of us are really qualified to talk about voodoo. 
but uh, th- there's no doubt that that there, there's something going on with the spiritual world down there in 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 Haiti, and uh, so so Robertson's not wrong to point that out. In fact, I believe they had two presidents right in a row who were. I, I hate to use this term, but this is the term I heard used: uh, witch doctors. And I, I'm I can I can neither confirm nor deny that. The word that I've seen um, in some of the accounts is a, a hugan. I, I'm not even really sure of the pronunciation, but it's like H H O U G A N something like that. Um, I mean, they, they they do have a very syncretic religion. That you know, they were they were slaves. Uh, they were slaves from you know from various uh, various tribes in. Uh, from in the continent and they brought with them, you know, their religious ideas were exposed to new religious ideas when they came to, uh, when they came to the Americas, you know, the religions of the people who owned them. And uh, they came up with a a syncretic combination of the two. Um, I was looking around a bit and uh, found one article that was published in um, May of uh, March. Yeah. March of 2009 talking about uh, the, the role that Bois Kaiman plays in even the current Haitian government. Um, it was, there was apparently a, some kind of a reenactment in 1991 for their bicentennial. Um, it, all, when I was Googling around, there was a political radio station in on on Haiti that that actually got shut down, but it was called Black Haiman, and uh, what I I understood it to be some kind of hate you know sort of like radio free Haiti, um, a, a radio program that was protesting the current government, um, you know so so Black Haiman is uh, not just this this ceremony in the past, but it's this event in the past that they look to as a symbol of them them deciding to to be independent of those who control them and and take uh take power um for themselves to rule themselves oh sure i mean that you know and that goes back to the point that i was making earlier that i think that a lot of i mean frankly a lot of you know mainline liberal leaning bloggers have run the other direction from robertson and said this has absolutely nothing to do with anything and I think that that's you know equally an oversimplifying take on things. Well, the thing that uh, the the little YouTube clip that that you'd sent me, Michael, that uh, that had Robertson's quote in it, the uh, the commentary that the, the 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 YouTube feed or whatever whatever the the commentator on that video who came back behind Robertson to comment, um, his. It, he he seemed to have no no consciousness that 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 Robertson was reacting to something in history, assumed that Robertson was making it up, and assumed that he was making it up because the people in Haiti were uh, were descendants of slaves, and therefore it was just a racist claim on the face of it. Well, also, um, but because we're Christians and and fairly fairly conservative Christians, um, we have to uh, we have to take claims about the spiritual world a little more seriously than. Um folks like the guy on YouTube. I mean, I mean right? Yeah. I, mean, I, I kind of agree with you, and that's one of the reasons why I actually, why this actually did make me uncomfortable, because, you know, I, as a Christian, I'm, I am a monotheist. There is one true God. I don't believe that Loas are proper 
objects of veneration. And if there is a spiritual reality to voodoo in the Christian worldview, there's only one kind of spirit that could be doing that. And I'm not, I'm, I'm hardly unique in Christian history saying that. Um, I mean, it's what the missionaries who, who, who go to Haiti and work in Haiti say. I actually uh, worked with a gentleman from Haiti who was a, a uh, uh, he was a Haitian pastor who had come to the United States to work on his doctorate and his, his PhD dissertation, well, actually it was a demon, I think, um, his demon project was about uh, exorcism, you know, working exorcism ministry in Haiti, and that was his take. I mean, that was that was the take of this Protestant pastor who worked in Haiti, who was Haitian. His take was, it's all demons. So, it made me really uncomfortable when, really uncomfortable when Pat Robertson did this, because. I really, really, really didn't want to agree with him at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, I, and you know, the phrase that you just used, David, I mean, really keys into what makes me edgy when these conversations come up. And I'll admit I get edgy too, but it's when people make that statement that it is all demons and it's yeah. that all that makes me nervous, you know, because I think mm. that far too often we Christians, especially of an evangelical bent, especially of a conservative bent, uh, chop up the world so that a phenomenon is either demonic or it is structural, economic, political. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, one of the things that we can learn and ought to learn, uh, both from the text of the Old Testament, the text of the New Testament, and from the medieval Christian traditions uh, and patristic traditions, basically stuff before the Reformation, well, and including the Reformation to some extent, but we'll get to that, is that those realities, you know, the ones that we call political, economic, sociological, psychological, and demonic, spiritual, you know, all of those realities are part of one created reality, and mm -hmm. that we ought to think about them as relating to each other rather than, you know, any given phenomenon being one or the other. So in other words, you know, uh, I am willing to agree with you, and in fact, I think it is the case that there is... Uh, an explanation for Haiti that involves the demonic, I think mm. that, that explanation in order to be adequate also has to deal with political history. It also has to deal with foreign relations. It also has to deal with a goodly number of other things. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, I, and, and I wasn't just talking about the entire situation in Haiti. I oh, sure. I, I didn't about... think where I just, you know, I yeah. just keyed in on that phrase and yeah. I said, that's one that we need to yeah. talk about because, you know, that is, I think one of the common category errors that evangelical Christians make very yeah. often. And also, you know, if I may, you know, put on my skeptical inquirer hat, um, you know, I'm not saying that, that all, that all religious manifestations are necessarily evidences of, of some kind of supernatural entity at work. Um, you know, there are, you know, there are such things as, you know, psychological factors that can look an awful lot like um, a spiritual rapture, um, an ecstasy, uh, 
things things of that nature. So there definitely is, you know, I'd say that you know it's we can't just say it's all demons, but there's also a good bit of complexity in the human mind and the way that it works and the way that uh, the unconscious parts of our mind manifest in our in you know in our overt behavior and things of that nature. So that you know even even that's more complex. So did the Haitians make a pact with the devil? Um, what about pacts with the devil? Uh, you know, I, I when I when I think of that, I think of Faust. I think of um, Robert Johnson. Yeah. What What about Robert Johnson? Well, he's, Papa Legba. He supposedly made a pact with the devil at the crossroads, right? To I don't know, learn to play the guitar better than anyone else. I've actually heard it wasn't even Robert Johnson. No, that's Robert Johnson. You've got it right. Oh no, no I. I, I think I, I think it kind of evolved into Robert Johnson. I actually think it, it began as Tommy Johnson. Really? Uh, I, I think that's in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I it? do too, but I think that's for a reason. Oh, okay, well, I, I know the Robert Johnson myth. I mean, Robert Johnson actually took it on himself uh, because, I mean, I've, I've read you know some historical work recently on that. Uh, what seems to have happened historically is that he took a year or so off from gigging in bars and just listen to Chicago blues records nonstop. But rather than say that, you know, he was taking their stuff and running with it and really doing new things with it that no one had before, uh, he'd rather have this story about selling his soul out there because it made him more mysterious, more sexy. But this notion of packs just in general, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned Faust earlier, but it also showed up in uh, medieval and early modern witch trials. Um, it was part of the uh, the medieval definition of of, of witchcraft, um, which that's just an interesting phenomenon in itself. Um, I, I'm I'm kind of of the opinion that the medieval witchcraft that you see depicted in in accounts of of, of trials of witch trials and things of that nature of that nature of inquisitions was largely something that 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 the theologians made up and uh, perhaps later on there were people uh, who because of some kind of countercultural impetus adopted this, this anti-Christian religion, which the theologians had invented, you know, adopted it as their own out of a, out of a kind of protest. But, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm seriously skeptical of the, of the idea of, underground groups in the middle ages who swear allegiance to the to the devil just outright and the same goes by the way for puritan north america yeah. oh sure i mean you know historians have, have recorded pretty convincingly i think that there are actually far far more uh witch trials during the renaissance and reformation than there ever were during the middle ages mm -hmm. yeah yeah but I, i'm th i'm thinking of you know the things like the Malleus Maleficarum and uh, other, you know, medieval, usually late medieval manuals that that give a taxonomy of witchcraft, but also, um, you know, kind of it, these are the questions to ask. These are the ways to spot them. Um, these are the things they can and can't do. Uh, I mean, th those books, those books existed. Um, the problem is, you know. Was there a reality that they were corresponding to, or was this some kind of parallel reality that was being sort of invented? Um, 
but well, I get I, well the, the narrative logic of it isn't hard to spot because I mean you've got in three of the four canonical gospels this story of Jesus himself going out into the wilderness and the devil making him offers of immense power uh, in exchange for various things. Uh, and you know, of course, one of the temptations isn't even an offer. It's more of a wager. I'll bet you can't turn these stones into bread. Uh, so, you know, I think that, you know, it's not too far a leap to say, all right, let's do a thought experiment. What if the devil came to someone else, uh, without the moral fiber of a Jesus? Uh, Hmm. and that person said, well, sure, I'll take that. That sounds great. And I think that's probably, you know, the origin of your Faust legend, the origin of your, you know, uh, witches as those who have consorted with the devil. Uh, you know, it's not as if those things emerge out of thin air. I mean, the, the logic is already there in the canonical scriptures. Well, that's true. But, uh, we also know that <laughs> we also know that Satan is the father of lies. So to what extent would a pact with the devil be considered binding by, well, by God or by even Satan? Sure, and I mean that's what makes you know Marlowe's Doctor Faustus, Goethe's Faust. That was that's what makes those stories so interesting to read. Yeah. So, what have we come to? Um, I think just reacting to to the Pat Robertson's claim about the history, um, it's much more complicated than than he seems to be depicting. And I'm not really sure that Pact with the Devil best describes what happened. <laughs> right. Although I would be comfortable saying that that is a story that the Haitians as a nation uh, have to some extent latched onto as, you know, something that they'll claim as their own history. You know, if indeed, you know, the, and David, you'll have to pronounce it again because I don't have it written down in front of me. If yeah. indeed that day is part of a bicentennial celebration, that means that, you know, to some extent they've grabbed onto that and said, this is who we are. Yeah. For, furthermore, um, Tony Campolo makes this point in his latest podcast, and you know, he works a lot um, in Haiti. Um, he, he makes the point that the Haitians believe themselves to be cursed. Really? Yeah, not only is part of their national myth that they made a pact with the devil, part of their national myth is that they're a cursed nation. Huh. Interesting. And and I don't know. If I lived in Haiti, I might believe that too. Because <laughs> at the very least, they've had some awfully bad luck, right? Yeah. Well, they, have, they haven't had a whole lot happen in their history to, to dissuade them from that view. Um. Just just reading the history of the Haitian Revolution, I saw that there was there was an immensely devastating earthquake very soon after that. So, um, you know, I, 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 it's it seems as if they decided to found a country on top of a fault line. Um, not a, a well. Did you, did you guys see that the the news story about Hugo Chavez? No. Oh, uh, he's claiming that uh, the U.S. has an earthquake weapon. And uh, we used it on Haiti. I was just waiting to hear it get blamed on global warming somehow. Oh, it did. Um, uh, Danny Glover, in an interview, uh, he didn't come out and say it overtly, but he seemed to be implying that the earthquake in Haiti was in some way a result of uh, the Copenhagen climate talks falling apart. 
So God God cursed Haiti because we couldn't make things work at Copenhagen? Or Gaia. Which leads me to the last, uh, the next topic, which is the source of suffering and the purpose for suffering. Um, it seems as if Danny Glover and Pat Robertson are, are in agreement on one point, which is that uh, this earthquake was was uh, was caused as as a judgment um, sent by you know some kind of entity that they regard as a higher power, whether that's you know God or the globe itself. So he's making this claim. Uh, Robertson is making this claim about uh, about God, about God as a as as the cause uh, in this case. Um, at least implicitly. So that brings us to the Bible. Uh, Nathan, you've done the most work, uh, I believe, with with biblical studies, both Hebrew and Greek. Um, how in general uh, do you see the, the, the problem of, of suffering's origin um, dealt with in uh, the scriptures, you know, testaments old and new? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, the answer to that is that there are a spectrum of reactions rather than a single reaction to it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just to give you a small sampling, and I mean, this isn't comprehensive by any means. On one extreme, I would call it, you've got the books of Chronicles uh, that go out of their way and take great pains uh, to demonstrate that every misfortune that falls Isra befalls Israel, and I mean every misfortune, uh, can be tracked back to some sort of wrongdoing against the book of Deuteronomy, all right? I mean, it is just amazing how thorough the book of books of First and Second Chronicles are in that respect. Uh, on the other extreme, uh, you've got the book of Ecclesiastes that basically says, you know, you can be as righteous and as wise as you want, and bad things still happen, and all is vanity. Everything is vanity. Uh, and somewhere in between there, you know, just to give, again, a couple examples, you have uh, the book, the many of the lament psalms in the book of Psalms uh, that treat suffering as an occasion when God, who has promised to watch over the righteous and who has the power to watch over the righteous, has for some reason forgotten to watch over the righteous, and it becomes the duty of the psalmist to call out to God and say, remember God, remember what you've promised to your people. And, you know, famously about the Psalms, the, the Jewish theologian John Levinson said uh, the reaction of the Psalms to evil is not to explain evil, but to ask God to blast it away. Uh, so, I mean, you know, as far as the Hebrew scriptures, you know, you've got a spectrum of reactions. And I think that whole spectrum uh, translates over into the New Testament. You know, I mean, when Jesus encounters the blind man famously and, you know, folks ask him, is he blind because of his own sin or because of his parents' sin? You know, they are latching onto that De Deuteronomic First Chronicles view of reality. Uh, and Jesus counters with, you know, this is not a, this is not because either of their sins. This is an occasion to, for God to demonstrate God's glory. The uh, time so, for God to blast the evil. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, I mean, you know, uh, when we get into the Christian era and people start trying to construct systematic theologies, uh, what happens invariably, I would say, I mean, I, I think it's inevitable given the range of reactions, uh, is that people will emphasize one of those, underemphasize the others, 
And that's why you can have multiple systematic theologies within a single Christian tradition, uh, because they will latch onto different parts of the scriptural witness when it comes to suffering, um, to, you know, try to give some sort of account of it within a general framework of revelation. Okay. Okay. Michael, um, I know that you uh, once taught the book of Job or had the book of Job taught <laughs> in a composition class. Um, is what Nathan's saying uh, about uh, particularly, you know, what we find in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, how is that reflected in the book of Job? Well, Job doesn't really provide answers to uh, the question of suffering in any any concerted way. Job ends up rejecting the theodicies that his friends put forth, and, and their theodicies are basically Robertsonian. You did something wrong, and now you're getting punished for it. All right, that First Chronicles angle. That's right. So then he demands that God explain himself, um, explain the problem of evil, and God just explodes and tells him, that he wasn't there when the world got made, and he doesn't know how things work, and he's presumptuous for demanding an explanation to this sort of thing. Right, but um, then he turns around and says, now, now, Job, go pray for your friends because they're even farther off. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and one, one interesting thing, uh, which, you know, full disclosure to our audience, um, Michael had, Michael had was teaching the book of job to this to this comp class of his but uh nathan i didn't actually and, teach it i, well, I divided it into it. three parts i taught the first part nathan taught the second to give them some background in hebrew and uh grubs ended up teaching the third part because i had to go to a conference so i didn't get to teach any of the uh the really interesting parts of job the chunk that i taught was the uh, mainly God's speech at the end, which is, I think, the best part. Um, but what I got out of it was not just that God is exploding on Job, but also, you know, calling calling him down for, for asking, you know, for having the impertinence to question him. But also, he's very God is very carefully pointing out the complexity of nature and all of the all of the all of the things that God minds, as it were, which includes uh, the goats, the goats out in the desert. And, uh, you know, he asked Job, you know, are are you the one who watches after the wild goats when they give birth? And uh, I love that image uh, in Job of, of God as, you know, almost a, a midwife for the wild animals, the one who, the one who thinks about animals in their time of pain and in the beginning of life um and uh, a concern and a regard for that i don't know to to me i took that as not just a calling job down on his impertinence but also calling job down on not recognizing how intimately god is involved with what goes on in the world and how much he cares about even the things that we have no regard for sure um, how did your students uh, deal with the the answers that that Job gives or doesn't give about suffering? Well, again, David, you're going to have to answer that question because I didn't teach them the part that <laughs> gave the answer. Yeah. Well, I, in fact, I, I was I wasn't there, so I don't I don't really know. I wish okay. I had been. Well, I didn't do the section uh, with Job's friends. I mean, do you remember Nathan? 
Uh, the answer to that is, I mean, first of all, Michael, because he's a sadist, assigned the King James text to them. So a lot of the <laughs> class was taken up, you know, with my explaining, you know, what different phrases meant. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I think his class latched onto pretty nicely uh, is the strong disconnect between what the narrator gives us in the first two chapters, this picture of Job as the blameless, righteous man, and then what transpires, you know, when the comforters get there, you know, when they say there must be some sort of sin here. Uh, I mean, they were liter liter literarily savvy enough to note that, you know, the book itself is setting up this disconnect and, you know, that the book was setting to the reader uh, this problem of, you know, do you believe the narrator or do you believe Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? Right. And I think, I guess that's actually kind of our, the situation that we've got today, um, you know, with Robertson occupying the position of, you know, Bildad and company. Sure. <laughs> now, of course, the biblical authors weren't talking in a vacuum. There were other answers that were being provided in the cultures, both uh, the cultures of the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures. Um, what other answers were being provided by different religions and different philosophies at those times, um, and were the biblical answers a response to those? Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, for the sake of our scientists who are listening, we do acknowledge here at the Christian Humanist Podcast that nobody speaks in a volume because the sound would have no medium. But, uh, dumb joke, sorry. Uh, Back you know, one of the things that uh, makes the New Testament so fascinating is because it does happen at this geographic and intellectual crossroads, uh, you know, I don't think that it is an accident. I think it's providential that Christ comes into the world in a province of an empire in a territory that's hotly disputed between two empires uh, and in a place where there are so many people making universal claims. And one of the genres that grows up out of that boiling pot of stories that people tell is the genre of apocalyptic. And I think that it really is, I mean, one of the most adequate stories for talking about suffering, not necessarily explaining it, but for talking about it and situating it. You know, one of the things that uh, I read somewhere, and I, I, for the life of me, I can't remember where I read it, is that suffering is pain without meaning. Mm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that apocalyptic does is that it situates the pain that Jews and Christians and, you know, those are the two main groups who use the genre. It situates that inside of a story in which the pain that Christians suffer uh, is not suffering. It's not meaningless, but it is punishment. Uh, and Augustine picks up, up on this wonderfully. He, of course, gets it from the Hebrews and from Plato. Uh, this idea that, you know, if you are wicked, then the nicest thing that God can do for you is to make you hurt uh, because it will teach you to be better. It will educate your soul. Uh, then on the other hand, you know, in apocalyptic, and, you know, when we talk about apocalyptic, we're talking about the Old Testament book of Daniel, the New Testament mm -hmm. book of Revelation. Uh, a lot of patristic writings are in the apocalyptic genre. A lot of early rabbinic writings are in the apocalyptic genre. Uh, the idea that there is suffering in the world and there are powers in the world with so much strength that the faithful cannot withstand them by force of arms. And this is one of the reasons why the early Christian church 
uh, becomes by and large a pacifistic tradition uh, because this belief arises that these powers are too grand for the church to resist by force of arms. What's going to have to happen is this apocalyptic judgment in which Christ returns uh, in full glory and consummates the salvation that he began uh, when he died and resurrected and rose to the right hand of the Father. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously pulling in a, a massive amount of material, but that's kind of what the New Testament does. Uh, there's a reason that people are still writing scholarly monographs about the New Testament and why people still hotly debate it. It's because it really does arise in this moment in history where you've got Greek philosophy and Jewish apocalyptic and Persian Zoroastrianism and all of these things coming together in Palestine, in Jerusalem, and, you know, some of the most fascinating intellectual traditions that the world has seen arise out of that historical moment. So, I mean, you know, to answer your question a little bit more briefly, David, I mean, absolutely, the New Testament is responding to all sorts of stories about suffering, and the paradigm that it seems to set forth more often than others, it's not exclusive, but it's more often than others, is this apocalyptic paradigm in which God has the goodwill to resist evil. God has the capability and the power to resist evil, but God is patiently waiting until certain conditions are fulfilled before everything comes to its full, to its fullness. Okay. Now, if the biblical writers were not, uh, you know, doing the physically impossible feat of speaking in a vacuum. Um, <laughs> they were also not the last thinkers, the last writers to to contemplate the questions of where suffering comes from and what it's all about. Um, and of course, we, you know, we as individuals have have different uh, different writers, different thinkers that we think have presented uh, compelling uh, compelling answers or or compelling re responses to this issue. Um, which ones do you per personally find compelling? I mean, Michael, is there anybody that you think says something that's worth listening to about suffering's origin and uh, its purpose? Sure, we should probably start with Calvin, since uh, both you and I claim to be Calvinists. <laughs> and, yeah. and Calvin, I mean, famously says that God controls every single thing that happens on earth, good and bad, and that he has reasons for the things that happen, even even if those reasons aren't immediately apparent to us. And I think um, I think that comes to a large extent from the book of Job. I, I think it at least kind of meshes with it. So it's a controversial doctrine, and it, the reasons why it's controversial are probably obvious. On the plus side, you get God maintaining absolute sovereignty. On the other hand, though, he comes off looking like a tyrant. He, looks, um, he can look sadistic. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm mostly okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think it's more important to me, anyway, that God be sovereign, that, that he be gentle. And I, I pretty much think he can do whatever he wants. And I try to trust that those terrible things that happen are going to be made right one day, which I guess is the apocalyptic vision. But even if they aren't, I don't think we get to call God a tyrant because it's God's prerogative to do as he wants to do. And that's the dark side of Calvinism. It's also the tyrant's prerogative to do what he wants to do, just to note that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, uh, that that's kind of funny because last uh, last week I believe it was even a, even about uh, 
some some technical issues that arose during the podcast. Um, I invoked Providence and uh, about some computer difficulties. And you, Nathan, you invoked uh, you invoked the turning of the wheel. Um, would, you care to, <laughs> would you care to explicate that? Certainly, certainly. I mean, that's a an image that actually Cicero, uh, a a Republican Roman, invents, but Boethius really takes it and makes it famous in the Constellation of Philosophy. Uh, Boethius's idea, and it's it's fascinating as much because of people who've reacted to him as as it is in its own right. Uh, but his idea is that God's realm is the eternal world uh, in which nothing changes. God's own essence is immutable. Uh, the heavenly spheres do not change. Uh, but once you get to the sublunary world, uh, those things that are subject to contingency and decay and, and, and other such nastiness, uh, God has appointed fortuna, fortune, luck, uh, to govern those things, and therefore the ethical advice that uh, Lady Philosophy gives to Boethius in that text is that you know if you enjoy the fruits of fortune, uh, you should know that fortune is like a wheel. You ride up, but then when you get to the top, you've got nowhere to go but down, and you shouldn't fault fortune for doing that because fortune's nature is to be random. Uh, fortune's nature is to throw people down who are up high and to raise people up who are down low. Uh, now, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, a thousand years later, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli uh, takes that same, he doesn't use the wheel image in the prince, but he does say that uh, fortune does indeed control many things, but only partway, and that a man of, of proper virtu or manliness or, you know, uh, cleverness. There's about a dozen different ways to transfer virtu, uh, but a man with sufficient power, let's call it that, uh, can at least to some extent grab fortune by the hair and make her obey. So, I mean, you know, the, the there's definitely, I mean, you know, some parallels there, you know, on the one hand, there are people who will say, you know, what's happening here in Haiti, you know, is just completely inevitable. It's a you know, it's a tragedy, but there's nothing to be done. And then there's other people who are saying, yeah, it's bad, but there's probably things that the world community of nations could do. Or could have been done. And so blame is spread. Sure. Sure. Um, it's, it's, it's fun because to me as someone who studies old English, because Mike, uh, Michael, your answer, um, invoking, invoking the providence of God and you, Nathan, uh, invoking Boethius and his wheel. Um, they both seem to converge in one of my favorite works of old English lit, which is, uh, the poem, the wanderer in which, uh, on one hand, the, this, uh, this social outcast says that, you know, fate is irrevocably fixed and that it's the human's job to just sort of grit his teeth and man up and deal with it. But at the end of the poem, he talks about all the things in the world as uh, as these temporal fleeting things that we enjoy for a while, but they will inevitably be taken away. Um, you know, our friends, our wealth, uh, all things are fleeting. And therefore, uh, what the wise man should do is to 
find his security in uh, in heaven with uh, with the eternal Father because that's where changelessness is. So uh, it's kind of interesting because to me, because the wanderer seems to be including both of those kind of assertions. On the one hand, the, the this idea of a of a, a a kind of fixed determination of what goes on in life, but also the notion of of cycles of of destruction that in the sublunar world um, things will be lost, things will pass away, but the place to find permanence is uh, is in the eternal world, the, the changeless world of God. Right, and just to be clear, I mean, you know, I teach Boethius because he's interesting. Uh, I am pretty far from a Boethian as far as my philosophy of suffering. Uh, I tend to be far more apocalyptic in my own treatment of such things. I mean, especially when I'm dealing with real life human people who have lost loved ones, mm -hmm. you know, I, first of all, I would be a monster if I told them, well, you know, you enjoyed them. You should have known that fortune would take them away. Uh, you know, that would be monstrous. I mean, I'm far more inclined to open up the Psalms and say, Hey, look, you know, here's the very text of the Bible crying out to God. What are you doing? Mm hmm. Yeah, Will in the Sky Keeps on Turning is not a terribly <laughs> good song to play at that point. <laughs> um, an another uh, one, one, one interesting uh, writer that, you know, I, I talked a lot about C.S. Lewis last week, but I, I'm not going to talk a lot about him now. But he's got two books that seem that, that address this, uh, one called The Problem of Pain and the other called uh, A Grief Observed. Um, it's the latter of the two that I think better better reflects, though, what the experience of suffering is. Absolutely. Much better book. Yeah. Um, much less cerebral, much more visceral. Um, but, you know, when, we're, when you're suffering, you don't, you know, suffering is not a cerebral thing. <laughs> um, it and, and I want to say our our kind of abstract theodicies, and I keep I keep using that word. And if if any of our listeners aren't familiar with it, a theodicy is a way to reconcile God's omnipotence, God's benevolence, and the fact that there's evil in the world. So derived uh, from the Greek theos, God, and DK justice. So I'm not talking about Homer. I'm talking about uh about suffering. Um, our our abstract theodicies are meaningless unless we can repeat them to a person who's in the midst of pain and have it make sense. Right. I mean, I, I think honestly, Michael, I mean, that's why I do find the Calvinist vision. I, I of course, being the Christian humanist podcast host who is not a Calvinist, <laughs> I mean, I, I do find it. I, I mean, I, I think I would take a step beyond unhelpful in the moment to inadequate to experience when one looks at it as a whole and i mean i know both of you guys are more convinced by it than i am but i still maintain that you know something more robustly apocalyptic like we find in the new testament is ultimately going to be more adequate and i think that that's one of the things that calvin loses in his theology he takes away that element of you know the turbulence of the world trading it in for what Michael rightly described as, you know, a very, very robust sense of God's ultimate sovereignty over every atom of every experience. Nathan, I think, I think you can kind of reconcile the two. I think you can have an apocalyptic Calvinism. Uh, 
in the, in the sense that the solution to all this, as as unpleasant and uh, difficult as it is, the solution is to trust that it will be made right. Oh, certainly, I would agree with that. You know, I I think though, but I, I, I th- think I, I think this is the strong difference between my own theology and something more Calvinistic, is that in retrospect, I am more inclined to view the world as being in play, in struggle. Whereas Calvin would say, you know, everything that seems to be, you know, evil gaining a foothold in the world is actually God doing something for some invisible reason. Yeah, that's what he says. That's fair. Okay. (laughs) Fair. Yeah. Okay. So I did get it basically right. No, that's that's exactly what he says. He says the things that appear to be chance are not chance. Right, right. And, you know, I, I would go the other direction. I'd say the things that appear to be chance, you know, might be chance, but they might also be, you know, the willed resistance to God on the part of some other principality or power. The What's interesting to me in this, in this discussion is that depending on the answers that we embrace, the suffering that we undergo means very different things. Oh, sure, sure. Um, you know, as a Calvinist, my usual my usual response is, uh, you know, to pull a line from, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the fella, Francis something or other, wrote this wonderful poem called "The Hound of Heaven." Um, but there's this line in it where where he asks God, "Must you char the wood ere thou? Must thou char the wood ere thou canst limb with it? You know, must must you burn the wood before you can write with it?" And, you know, talking about his, you know, feel, feeling like he was burnt and like, must you burn me before you can use me for the purpose you want? And that's usually my response. My response in suffering is usually not to to ask God to intervene, to to make it better. It's usually, you know, I, I usually see the hand that's hurting me as ultimately God's. That's interesting because I, I – and it might be just because, you know, as far as my own devotional reading, it's almost exclusively in the Psalms, mm-hmm. but that is precisely my first reaction. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, yeah, and, and like I said, I mean, I, I think that Michael's right, what he said earlier, that at the eschaton, at the end of things, the Calvinist and the apocalyptic vision end up in the same place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's as far as, you know, making some sort of – literary sense of what happens in the seculum in the intervening time uh where different theodicies are going to differ Mm -hmm. yeah so in the case of robertson's take on haiti uh which one of these does he seems to be does he seem to be assuming is correct well, like I said, I think his vision is very, very strongly informed by that First Chronicles vision. The reason I keep pointing back to that book is because the, you know, take America back for God movements in their various faces uh, mm. almost uniformly will go to First Chronicles to that famous passage, you know, uh, if my people will humb- humble themselves and uh, fall down before me and pray, then I will hear the- heal their land. I realize I just mangled it in that paraphrase. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that encapsulates the ideology of first chronicles you know if things are going wrong uh it is because of some sort of ritual impurity uh you know i mean that is 
the explanation for everything in First Chronicles. Now, my reaction to that as someone who loves the Bible and teaches the Bible is that is a vision that the Bible presents. It's not the only vision that the Bible presents. You know, it is something that I would say you can hold on to as a as one side of a polygon, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You're also attempting, not you, Nathan, but uh, the the abstract you who is making these claims is a, is attempting <laughs> to um, take a promise made to a specific historical and religious group and apply it universally. And I I, I don't think that is in any way valid. Yeah, the, well, I mean, the the view of Chronicles is, I mean, I mean, you said this, Nathan, that it's. I mean, it's structured on on Deuteronomy. It's sure, invo- sure. It's invoking uh, the covenant that God made. Um, so, you know, I, I I mean, I wonder whether on the on the other hand, if you look at uh, if you look at very you know various prophets, uh, they also spoke God's judgment on nations that were not Israel and were not bound by the covenant. That's uh, that's set out in in Deuteronomy with its various uh, contingent blessings and contingent curses. I mean, God also judged the Assyrians and the Edomites and you know all of these other sundry nations for things that things that they had done. And God in the prophets says, "I'm going to send this calamity on you because of you because you've done these particular things." Right, and even more so in the Book of Malachi, God even praises the other nations. And says that they are more genuinely worshiping the true God because their justice exceeds that of Israel. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, what I, I I'm this this is my assumption. My assumption is that Robertson is attempting to set himself up as one of those prophets. Um, is he justified in doing so? If he were going to do that, I wish that he would say, you know, God came to me in a vision and the word of God said this, because <laughs> at least then he would stick his neck out and put himself in a position where someone could say false prophet. Well, you know what? He's made prophecies. He's made actual prophecies. He claimed in the early 80s that Judgment Day would be in 1982. He claimed that a, a tsunami would hit the Pacific Northwest in 2006. He claimed there'd be a nuclear terrorist attack in 2007. And he claimed last year that the price of oil would go up to $300 a barrel. So why don't we hold him to the standards of the Old Testament that he's holding everyone else to and put him to death? Because that's what you're <laughs> supposed to do to a prophet whose prophecies don't come true. Yeah. Well, and, and in this case... Um, he seems to be assuming, you know, he's putting on his 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 prophet robe, but he didn't predict this. I mean, it it seems to me very easy to, you know, pretend to be a prophet, but to actually be one of Job's friends, and show up in the aftermath, and talk to the people sitting in the rubble of their lives, and, you know, try to come up with reasons for why why their life is rubble. Sure. I mean, I mean, it's it's it seems to me that the that the the model that we see in uh, well in in scripture throughout is that when God speaks judgment, um, he does so preemptively in such a way that when when the blow falls, you know it's from him. Oh, that's a good, and point. therefore is meaningful. I mean, 
I mean, does it does any, does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right to me. I... And it's it's clear from the Bible that sometimes things happen without it being punishment, right? Especially these natural diseases. Certain like, parts isn't of the there Bible, a, certainly. There's an earthquake in the New Testament that they ask Christ about, right? Right? Am I am I completely messing this up? Oh yeah, no, you're right. You're right. And and in fact, in that earthquake, a tower falls and crushes several people. Mm-hmm. What did, what was his response? I honestly I remember the tower falling, but I don't remember what he said. Which is his, his response is very interesting because he entirely refuses to answer the question why it happened. He he basically says, "Yeah, that was pretty awful, and it's going to be even worse if you keep rebelling against Rome." <laughs> <laughs> He's uh, he's not very helpful sometimes. <laughs> well, I mean, so I I guess the the uh, the reticence of Christ uh, can sometimes be his his refusal to simplify something that's more complicated. Sure, and I should add before before someone hits us on the comment box, and I'm sure someone still will, and rightly, uh, that was a an entirely a paraphrase on my part. There is scholarly dispute as to what the actual words of Christ in response to that question mean. I take it to mean, you know, you people are on the way to a war against a power that you can't take on on your own. If you really want to avoid towers falling on you, that's where you need to look. Yeah. Okay. I, it seems to me that we've we've kind of reached a... Uh... A good concluding place for this conversation um but i guess in the in the end um how should we be responding to the suffering of the others our own our, our own suffering but also the very specific suffering that we see going on in haiti now um what would be a better model than uh than the one that we've responded to today i, I think one model that shows some promise, although the, it does have its flaws, is something like what David Brooks wrote in his weekly column directly afterwards. I mean, he really gave a pretty nice, clear-minded look at the situation in Haiti and said, you know, the fact of the matter is, 15 years ago, give or take, there was a 7.0 earthquake in San Francisco in which 63 people died. He said, you know, 15 years later, a 7.0 earthquake hits Port-au-Prince, and thousands and thousands are dying. And he said, and, you know, he lays out some, like I said, I mean, some pretty clear-minded suggestions about why it happened. I mean, what I take from it, I don't entirely agree with the way that he treats it, uh, but that, again, going back to what I think is the best thing, one of the best parts of what Calvin gives to us, you know, I think that we should marshal our forces as human beings, all right, uh, bring to bear the best resources we can to make large scale change in Haiti because, you know, they've got more Christian missionaries and non governmental organizations than any place in the planet. They're still not doing great. Mm -hmm. But while we do that, recognize that as human beings, we're not going to be able to build a tower that reaches the heavens and that, mm -hmm. you know, even in the face of our best efforts, we're going to run afoul of our limitations. So, you know, I would say that, you know, genuine organized human help and genuine human humility in the face of the enormity of things. Michael, what do you have to say? 
I, I was going to say that our role in suffering is trifold, and the, the first two parts are what you just said, and the third part is that as Christians, we should encourage the suffering to turn to God in a real way, which is something Robertson said that I, I can agree with, that, um, that this, is, this is what suffering teaches us if it teaches us things, which is um, repent, um, and that, that's, that's the message to all suffering, even if it's not punishment. Yeah, one if, if I want to tag on to that one thing that you know we we didn't um, we didn't bring up is uh, the the role in biblical theology of you know to what extent is human sin um, something that that results in natural suffering um, you know what does it mean for creation to groan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I I think that you know that we can we can make the call to repentance without also saying and the earthquake happened because of these specific things you did. Sure. But simply to uh, to in, to invoke what you what you brought up, uh, Nathan, about the the apocalyptic vision that you know this is this is a world in which in which suffering happens and. The problem, the human problem, is that by default we are not on the side of good, and we need to recognize that it's not a, not as if this is an evil world in which suffering happens to completely neutral beings that it has nothing to do with, you know, uh, you know, to echo G.K. Chesterton um, when uh, when a newspaper asked what's wrong with the world today, uh, his his two word response was I am. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think one of one of the appropriate human responses to suffer, suffering is to recognize that, you know, we're not we're not completely separate from that suffering. Right. Some of that suffering That's one of those moments I don't feel like do. Chesterton's trying to sell me something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, him him yeah. selling his own guilt is not uh, not that. Yeah, big I'll of a buy problem. that. <laughs> but yeah, we do, we don't need to dodge our role and our suffering, and uh, and and not see ourselves as simply you know the completely innocent victims of horrible causeless things. Um, you know, e- even if you know we may debate where whence the suffering came, uh, it should be cause for us to to consider what uh, what our role is in uh in this world in our relationship to its sinfulness um anything else um what are we talking about next week well next week i'm going to be moderating the show david and the podcast is going to go all to hell uh because <laughs> we're going to be talking about Joke. the afterlife as literature portrays it we're going to get into some virgil some dante some Jean-Paul Sartre, some C.S. Lewis, uh, ought to be a hell of a time. So we, we, Al. Yeah, I'm sure there won't be any childish uh, profanity jokes next week. Certainly not. None whatsoever. Um, Well, so we're going from Pax with the Devil to Hell. That's, wow. So we're going to take things back over at camp, but get better. All right, so um, that's it. Uh, all of all of our kind listeners, you guys have grand weeks, and uh, 
to you, Nathan, and you, Michael. Uh, I wish you guys a grand rest of your week as well. Um, if you want to leave comments on today's uh, show, you can send email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. If you want to look at Nathan or Michael's blogs, Nathan's is nathangilmore.com slash hardly. Michael's is ladderonwheels.blogspot.com. I still have not written on my blog. Um, one day that may change. So in the meanwhile, as we always say, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. Punishment for sins of pride.